Welcome to The Hidden Truth, Breaking the Silence. I'm your host, Jonathan McLernan. Each episode, we explore stories of individuals and how they've been affected by being a part of a secretive Christian fellowship. The stories shared here may include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Dysfunction happens when doctrine meets dogma and silence is paramount. So let's pull back the veil on today's episode of The Hidden Truth. All right, welcome back. For those who fo- who've been following along, I've actually had a bit of a hiatus from publishing episodes uh, after overcoming some bronchitis, and so I'm actually really looking forward to this interview. It's the first one back for a while, so uh, I'm also excited to bring Megan onto the show. I had the pleasure of interviewing Megan previously um, for my other podcast, Between Before and After, and I thought she had such a remarkable story, but it was also very relevant to uh, what we're trying to expose and bring attention to um, over here in this this show. So I wanted to bring Megan on and have her share her story here as well. So welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think um, before we dive into it, uh, maybe let's let people know where you're at right now and kind of what you're currently doing, and then we're going to explore the backstory. Yeah, so uh, most of my work right now is um, coaching uh, other people through traumatic experiences and leaving high demand religions and um, exiting other sort of abusive situations. And it's really fulfilling for me. I'm really enjoying doing that work and just getting out there on social media and trying to spread the word that healing is possible and that Mm -hmm. life after trauma can be beautiful. I love that. And I think it's a super, super important message because there's so many people out there that are struggling. I used a really key phrase there, um, high demand religions. And uh, you, you've had a lot of experience with this yourself. I'm curious how you would define, um, how you define a high demand religion and maybe sh- um, sharing a little bit about how you feel that that affects people and, and creates trauma. Yeah, so high demand religion is not my phrase. Um, I can't take credit for that. I've heard it um, in the ex-Mormon space for a long time. Um, And I think it's a little bit more of a kind way to talk about cultish behavior and Mm -hmm. to talk about high control groups. A lot of people don't like the cult word. Um, They find it offensive. But it really is a way to describe, um, you know, certain groups that that really demand they demand a lot of their members and they take a lot of uh, space in the members lives. So they Mm -hmm. they try to control, for example, the things that you wear, the things that you eat and drink, who you marry. Um, They try to control the amount of information that you consume they try to mm-hmm. limit the information that you consume. So it's only from approved sources. Um, and they may try to manipulate your emotions in some way to get you uh, dependent on the religion or the group or the organization. And so I think it's just a way of encompassing talking about all of these different groups that that kind of fall on the spectrum of culty. Yeah, I like that you said there's a kind of a spectrum for this because I think that also softens the word cult. Uh, nobody wants to put up their hand and say, like, I was I was deceived and maybe brought up in a cult. And um, there, there are, I think, some researchers who've tried to create a fairly definitive definition of what qualifies as a, as a cult. But I really think there are there is kind of a spectrum like everything else. Um, and maybe this is why people have also some degree of discomfort with this, because it's like, well, I don't feel like I was sort of brainwashed into this or I was trapped in this or things like that. But when you start to look at patterns of behavior that emerge over time, you think, wow, this is starting to tick a, a lot of boxes. Um, 
you mentioned the Mormon church and I know that you, you were raised in the Mormon church and you spent a number of years in the Mormon church. I'd be curious um, if, if you feel comfortable sharing, what other like groups have you encountered that sort of fit this, this kind of definition that you were describing there? Well, it's funny you should ask because um, after leaving the church, I actually did a course with a researcher whose name is, um, shoot now, it just just left my mind. Um, he wrote a book called Cults to Consciousness, and um, it's Dr. Stephen Hassan. And he was in the Moonies cult back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he wasn't in for that long, but that was the, the time frame that that cult was popular. It was like the mass weddings. Mm-hmm. And after finally being able to break free, he spent the rest of his career dedicating himself to researching cults and cult behavior. And he came up with something called the bite model for determining um, wh- where something is on the spectrum of healthy versus unhealthy. And um, one of the things that he talks about is the fact that cults are all around us. There's a cult of Diet Coke drinkers. There's a cult of Apple product consumers. There's a cult of Taylor Swift fans. There's a cult of Trump supporters. It's all of these different groups fall on that spectrum somewhere. And Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. uses what he calls the bite model to make definitions about whether the cult that you're in is healthy or not healthy. It can even be a work environment, the corporation that you work for, Um, you know, any sports team that you follow, those kinds of things. So BITE, B-I-T-E, stands for behavior, information, thought, and emotion. And if you belong to a group that are trying to manipulate or control any one of those four areas, it could be on the unhealthy side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And I like that uh, you mentioned how many different ways like cults can kind of show up in our society. I think of, of like sometimes movies or books, they get referred to as, as, as developing a cult following. Mm-hmm. And that's actually almost seen like a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, maybe like uh, Star Trek and Star Wars, probably you could say that they have a cult following. Um, but they're, they're like really, really big. There's also some more obscure things that maybe they didn't make it big at the, the box office or something like that. But then they, they sort of build some kind of following afterwards. It's, I think it's, it, it really points to some interesting facets of just human behavior in general and, and our desire to, our desire to belong and to find some kind of sense of, of meaning. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I, I wonder if like not all things that fall in the spectrum are entirely a bad thing. And maybe this is why people experience cognitive dissonance around this because they think, well, how is it a bad thing when I'm getting some good things out of this? And um, have you encountered any sort of cults or groups that are exclusively negative? Or do you think it's this this idea that it can be really hard to uh, break free because you are getting something positive out of the experience just as a whole? It's a negative thing. Would that be why some people struggle so much with trying to 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 break free from this? Yeah, I think what you said is is spot on that people join groups for all sorts of different reasons, but the main feeling that we get is a sense of belonging, a sense Mm -hmm. of community, sometimes even a sense of validation. And I think one of the reasons why these groups are so compelling is because there's sort of a list of unwritten rules that if you match these qualifications or if you check these boxes, that you're automatically going to be accepted. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's one of these where it's a lot easier for us to look outward for validation from external sources than it is to look inward and love and accept ourselves. And Mm -hmm. that work, that work of loving and accepting ourselves is a lot harder than 
um, going to a Taylor Swift concert and dressing like everybody else and singing along with the lyrics and feeling like you really belong somewhere with thousands of other people. It's such a quick high. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do they call them? Do they call them like Swifties or something Swifties. like that? <laughs> yeah. Right. And I, I have to talk about it lovingly because my couple of my daughters are, are Swifties. So. <laughs> right. Right. I, I think it's such a fa- that that in itself is such a fascinating cultural phenomenon because there's like, I think there's kind of a fake, I don't want to say a fake story behind it. Uh, like, Oh, like came, came from nothing. It's like, well, that's not, <laughs> it's not quite true when you actually look at the backstory, but it, it, there's a lot of genius marketing that goes into that. And so, um, and then I think about how bring this back to sort of this idea of, of religious groups and these high control groups and high demand groups. It seems like there are certain types of individuals that are drawn to being in, in leadership positions within these. We would all see this in the corporate world, but what what are some uh, sort of really unhealthy behaviors that you would tend to observe from uh, religious leadership? Well, that it's a really tricky thing being in religious leadership because you are given a certain degree of power and control mm-hmm. over people. And you're also given the opportunity to manipulate people spiritually and to abuse people spiritually and also to have access to potential other abuse victims. And so it can be a really tricky thing where you may get into leadership, church leadership, because you want to do good and make a difference. But sometimes the power and control that you have corrupts you and you start using it against people without even really knowing it. And I don't know um, about a lot of other high, high demand, high control um, religions, but I know that the, one of the things in the Mormon church that is, has become unhealthy on a lot of levels is the idea that your ecclesiastical leader has some power over what jobs you get in the church or what groups you're accepted into in the church. And for for Mormons, you know, the the pinnacle of Mormon worship is to go to the Mormon temple. And you have to go through a two-step interview process in order to get acceptance into the temple. And you they give you a card and you literally have to take it with you to the temple and they scan your barcode. And you have to have two wow. different church authorities sign off on that. So, you know, if those men don't like the way that you answer the questions, then they can prevent you from going to the highest level of worship. And the temple is where people get married. So they can prevent you from getting married. They can prevent you from attending the wedding of your own child if they don't like the way that you answer the questions. So it really does become a powerful position where Mm -hmm. there's a lot of cultural and social power as well as spiritual power. So I think it's a hard thing to ask human beings to be in a leadership position that has that much power over people and, and expect it to not create some corruption in the wrong kinds of people. Right, right. Um, I, I wrote down a phrase. It's it's an older phrase from politics, but it's called the, the party clobbering machine. And it's kind of an expression that refers to when somebody goes into politics and they have all of these great ideals. They're young, they're energetic, they're excited, they're going to make change, they're going to be a part of reform, and there's all these great things they want to accomplish. And then along comes the party clobbering machine. And basically, by the time they're done, they're just another, they've just fallen in line with whatever, whatever it is the party does. And they've really kind of lost themselves and their sense of individual identity becoming a part of that party. And so you're right. There, there probably are a, a good many people who, who find themselves gravitating towards leadership positions within religious organizations who have good intentions. But once you get in there, um, 
something happens and it could be a product of the the structure and the hierarchy itself um, that that sort of facilitates uh, this kind of spiritual abuse or uh, there's probably also a combination of um, the people that find themselves in positions of power and how they kind of handpick their successors as well this sort of uh, human hierarchy that develops um, do you tend to observe if it's more a systematic thing versus a human thing or um, how do those two kind of wrap together it's probably a complicated um, you know number of factors that come together but also, what you're mentioning uh, about the party clobbering machine, you know, is, is reminding me a lot of the corporation of the church. The, the Church mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is literally a corporation. There are two different, two separate corporations, and I won't get into the structure of that, but the entire focus of the corporation is to keep the reputation of the corporation pristine. And mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. even to the point where bishops, um, bishops are the ones who they're leaders of a congregation. So it would be like a pastor um, in any other church. And people will come to the bishop and confess their sins. And um, if somebody confesses to, for example, some kind of abuse, the bishop has a hotline that he can call where the church corporation tells him how to handle this confession. And it's not a hotline to a mental health professional. It's not a hotline to um, even a human resources professional. It's a hotline to a law firm, the law firm mm-hmm. that represents the church. And it's not to get help for the victim or the, the confessor. It's so that the bishop doesn't report it in a way that makes the church look bad or that gets the church into legal trouble. And so when you're a you're the leader of a congregation but you're answering to a corporation and to a law firm, that's a very problematic kind of structure to have in place when you're talking about, you know, people confessing, abusing children and things like that. It's funny you you mentioned that um obviously the organization that I'm a part of is much smaller I think in scope and scale um than the LDS church, but um <laughs> maintaining a pristine image. This is a thing I think almost above all else that really facilitates the cover-up of abuse. There's this idea, like I imagine the the Mormon temple, I guess there's only one or there's one big one or one main one. Um, There are hundreds of them actually. (laughs) Okay. So it shows you how much I know. Um, I was thinking there's, there must be like a head or a big church um, somewhere in, in Salt Lake city or something that's like the main one or the yeah. whatever, but, and imagine it's like very pristine and white and, and there, there's this whole image of purity. That's like all wrapped up on the interior of this. And there's this beautiful awe-inspiring design and architecture and all of this. And there's this whole image that's created. And then, um, you know, somebody comes along and tells a story that's kind of akin to flinging a bucket of mud on the wall. And, um, they're more concerned about scrubbing the mud off the wall than they are dealing with like the source of the mud. And uh, it, it, it's it's this idea of trying to maintain this pristine image. And for what? For what? Yeah, Why do exactly. we have to maintain this pristine image? Yeah. And I think for the Mormon church, the answer to that is to retain members at all costs because they're tithe paying members and it's a huge financial right. as well. So, but what something that you mentioned, you know, makes me think, the pristine image, well, it's no different than a family system who keeps secrets. And we Mm. talked about some of that on the other episode that I did, you know, the maintaining that pristine image 
for what? So that the neighbors don't know that there's dysfunction in your family, like there is in every single family in the existence of everything. You know, it's it's just this sort of yeah. false, it's a false sense of security. And I think there's far more power in admitting shortcomings within the organization and doing your best to fix them. I think that would retain members a lot better than trying to cover up the fact that these things happen because we know they happen. We just don't know the scale on which they're happening because of all of the cover-ups. But then when something does come out and get exposed, I think that does far more damage than it would if you were just proactive about saying, you know, this thing happened. It was terrible. This is how we tried to help the victims. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting. um, My dad has referenced, because I've had a lot of conversations with my dad about this. He's he's a part of this fellowship as well. And um, he talked about, I think it would have been like the mid-90s. There was a, a Tylenol scandal in New York where somebody had been going and I think they were, they were like using a needle to inject, I don't know, some kind of poison or they were basically tainting bottles of Tylenol in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and the response was they went and just cleaned the shelves of everything. They recalled every bottle of Tylenol in like all of New York city kind of thing. And within, you know, a day or two, there was somebody on there saying, we're absolutely going to take care of this has happened. We're, we're taking every step we can to mitigate this, to reduce the risk. We've, we've taken everything off the shelf and we're putting these procedures in place to make sure that this can never happen again. And I'm not suggesting that Tylenol is a great product. It's a useful product. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't have value, but <clears throat> I have my own opinion about pharmaceuticals. But um, mm-hmm. but how they handled that crisis is really a, a lesson in like what works because nowadays, does anyone even think about it? That there's yeah. anyone even, like, Does anyone even remember that there was this crisis? No, because they said this happened. They didn't try to hide it or sweep it under the rug or somehow save money by keeping product on the shelf and taking you know the risk and so on and so forth. They went and they addressed it head on. And I think what a difference it would be if leadership in in these organizations would stand up and say, there's this terrible thing that's been taking place and it's been facilitated by our belief structure, by our our hierarchy. There's all these reasons why this has been taking place. And we're terribly, terribly distressed by this. And we have to fix it. We have to make this right. And here's what we're going to do. Um, in, in, In sort of Christian terminology, I might say like, you know, sackcloth and ashes repentance you know mourning like like actually coming out and this is the thing that that i think has a lot of people frustrated is when something like this is revealed that this doesn't even show up <laughs> I think, like how are you why are you more concerned about sweeping things under the carpet than about making things right because isn't that what this whole thing was supposed to be about yeah exactly and you know if you think about the hypocrisy to me at least of you know a church like the LDS church that that bears the name of the Savior and think of the values that Jesus Christ presented. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then you compare that with the way that the church organization looks and feels and operates and the sort of messages that they put out. It just doesn't it doesn't jive. And what's interesting is that everybody in the world seems to see it except for the people who are in the church. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think this is this is a fascinating one, too, because there's a part of us that doesn't want to see this. So um, I would estimate in, in the two by two fellowship, as we're often referred to by outsiders, probably good 80 percent of congregants either don't know what has taken place or don't want to know what has taken place. And I'm I'm a student of, you know, psychology and human behavior. And, and so I get curious about this and I go, why do people not want to know? And I think about their sense of identity and how it's tied up in this. And and I go, okay, well, what do they feel 
is threatened by this knowledge or this information. Now, with leadership, it's fairly obvious. Your position, your access to money, your your prestige, all this is threatened. But to the average like layperson, congregant or whatever, like what is threatened? It's like your very sense of identity. Because if you've been indoctrinated in a certain way that this, this is the way. <clears throat> and outside of this way, you're facing eternal damnation. So I don't want to know. And that actually really facilitates the furthering of, of abuse as well. Um, and so I, I wonder if that's, I mean, I'm going to imagine it's probably the same in the LDS church where a lot of people, maybe they just, they just don't want to know because they say, you will undermine my faith if you tell me that this is happening. And I think, well, what's your faith in? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's such a complicated system for people who've been in the church for their entire lives, because telling somebody the truth about the you know, the doctrine being false, it it does threaten their sense of self, but it also would cause them to have to admit that they have invested their entire lives into yes. something that's not true. And that's incredibly um, damaging to one's ego. It's not mm-hmm. only that, though, it's it's this question of, well, if this isn't true, then what is? Yeah. And there is this tendency to want to outsource our critical thinking. Because it's much easier to believe that my parents and my grandparents and all the leadership of the church and all the rest of my family members had it right. And to trust mm-hmm. those people and to just believe that they that they had it right. In order to question that, you really have to question everything. You you have to say, well, is it possible that somebody way, way back down the line can I point yeah. right right there? there you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, my grandmother, who I love very much, was, you know, mm-hmm. a third, third generation Mormon. And so that makes me what fifth generation, my children's yep. sixth generation. And um, for my children to be brave enough to question it and to say, I don't know if this is right. And mm-hmm. the other facet of that is, you know, ha- having limited information. And having the church literally tell you that if you are a good, faithful member, you're not going to question anything that the church leadership says. And if you do question, it's because you have evil intentions. And also, everything that's written about the church that's not approved by the church leadership is evil and wrong and anti-Mormon literature, and you shouldn't, mm-hmm. you shouldn't read it. And also telling you that people who've left the church are evil. And none of them are happy. And you can see that the light has left their eyes. And also the leadership of the church giving talks from the pulpit that say, if you leave us, where will you go? What will you do? And I have to say that it's very much true in Utah where the population of Mormonism is so high. Mm -hmm. If you leave the church there, and you're a doctor or a dentist or an attorney or a realtor, and your entire client base is church members because Mormons yeah. like to do business with other Mormons. They trust each other, right? right? Yeah. If yeah. you leave the church, there goes your entire business as well. There goes your social circle. Your kids' friends are not allowed to come to your house anymore because you you get labeled as the nasty ex-Mormon. you know. And so there there is a huge amount at stake. And so psychologically, it's a really difficult thing to even confront the fact that what you believe might not be true. And it takes Mm. a great deal of courage to go ahead and open that internet browser and search for something that you've had questions about, 
knowing that you're probably going to come across things that you're not going to like, or you're not going to want to hear. And it's, it's confronting your own mortality. It's confronting your own existential Mm -hmm. crisis. It's confronting the entire system that, that you've been raised under and lived under for your whole life. So it is really hard. It's a lot easier to stay in, stay quiet, keep your head down, you know, toe the line, believe what you've been taught. But for for a lot of us who like who leave, I think we get to the point where that cognitive dissonance gets to be too much to manage and we can't yeah. handle it anymore. Yeah. Um, there's a very famous talk in Mormonism. One of the women um, leaders gave back in the 80s where she said, if you don't understand something or if doctrine doesn't make sense or you don't feel like you're getting the answers that you need, just put it on your shelf. Just put it on the shelf and leave it there and know that at some point your question's going to get answered, even if it's not in this life, even if it's in the afterlife and you have to wait to ask God, why this, why that? Mm-hmm. And so a really common phrase among um, post-Mormons is that my shelf broke because there were so many things on my shelf, it couldn't bear the weight anymore and it just broke. And I think that's the point that a lot of us get to where our cognitive dissonance outweighs the discomfort of leaving or questioning. Isn't, isn't that just an encapsulation of like human psychology that we don't change until the discomfort of remaining the same becomes greater than the discomfort of change. Exactly. And I find myself smiling kind of sardonically because I'm like, man, I'm hearing a lot of parallels here, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, cause we're, we're a relatively unknown organization. Um, for, for, for the most part, uh, small, probably, I don't know, 100,000, 200,000 congregants worldwide, like not, not very many people. And uh, it been around for 100, 125 years kind of thing. And I think even started with good intentions. You know, let's try to model what we saw in the, the, the New Testament. Let's see if we can, we can sort of recreate that. Um, but it's become this, this thing where it became more and more insular. I don't know if that happens in, in the churches, the, the LDS church as well, where things just become more and more insular. And uh, I, I know in, in this fellowship, it became more about like flock maintenance, I would call it. <laughs> like trying to, to just, just keep this inner circle like, closed off. Then, then about like connecting with other people. And I think, man, if, if we think we have something of value, like why aren't we, aren't we like going out and connecting with people? And why are we so afraid of people that don't look like us and don't act like us and behave like us, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I definitely see par- parallels there for sure. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your, your story and your experience. And for, for those who want to hear like a more in-depth version of it, there is the, the previous interview with Megan is available where there's more in-depth in there, but I want to, I want to kind of loop it back in because I think there's, a, there's also a buzzword that's been floating around a lot uh, lately. Maybe the buzzword of the year has been like deconstruction and what that journey looks like. Um, but if we could just sort of get a, a condensed version of your story of what you experienced of the trauma that you went through and how you kind of tried to navigate your way out of that. Um, and then it's like all the roadblocks you kind of experienced because of how you've been, you've been taught or dare I say respectfully indoctrinated in, in what it was that made it really difficult for you to recover. And so, um, kind of just opening, opening the floor here. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Indoctrination is the right word. Um, and I will try to keep it brief. Um, and please feel free to interrupt me if you think I need to go down in a, in a different <laughs> direction. I'll, I'll try to be as yeah. brief as I can. Cause I could, I could talk about this story 
for a really long time because it was my whole life. But um, and you've you know, written some great books as well. I'll just mention that too, and we'll <laughs> we'll mention them again afterwards because I think people who really want to know that um, they're well worth reading. So, oh, thank um, you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So like I said, fifth, fifth generation Mormon, um, my grandmother who's behind me, um, uh, her, her mother came across the plains with the pioneers, um, and, and went to Utah when it was not part of the United States. Um, and the story that we were told is that they were, uh, escaping religious persecution. And so they literally had to leave the country and establish their own community. Um, my dad joined the church, uh, as a, as a young teenager, and, um, you know, my parents met at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah and got married. And so their whole plan, obviously, was to raise their family in the church um, according to the way that that everybody taught you how to do it. And the expectations in the Mormon church are that you have family prayer and scripture study at least you scripture study at least once a day, family prayer at least twice a day. You pray over every meal. Um, once a week, you have what's called family home evening, where you turn off the TV and you don't do any um, sports or outside activities. You reserve Monday night for family night and you play games or you have a gospel discussion and you get together, which all of this sounds so, so wholesome. Right. It, it really it really does. Like, sound I, wonderful. Like some of it actually doesn't sound so bad, like taking a break from screens. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so not only that, but church was for three hours on Sunday. Um, there was the main the main meeting, which would be like your communion meeting where we take the sacrament. And then um, the group split up and the children go in one direction. The adults go in one direction for two more hours of Sunday school after that. And then um, twice a year, they would broadcast a general conference from Salt Lake City. And you were expected to attend as many sessions of that as you could. And it was Saturday and Sunday, two sessions of two hours each. And then um, this... Saturday or the Friday beforehand, there was another special meeting that you could go to. And then in addition, when you're a youth, um, there's a youth group meeting every Wednesday night. Um, during the summer, there's girls count camp and boy scout camp. And um, there's just, there's so many activities, you know, holidays and once a month and all that stuff that, that all of your time gets filled up with church activities. So um, from the time that you're a baby, you're being exposed to all of these things. And the the children start at the age of three in Sunday school. And so um, the, the expectation is that when you're eight years old, you've reached what they call the age of accountability and you're old enough to make a choice to get baptized into the church. And once you're baptized, you're a full-fledged member. You're expect to abide, uh, expected to abide by all the commandments, pay your tithing and all those things. So by the time from the age of three to the age of eight, with all of those meetings and prayers and everything in between, you've endured over a thousand hours of indoctrination. Mm -hmm. And at the age of eight, developmentally, what child at the age of eight is, uh, is able to make a choice that's different than the one that all of your family members have made, every right. single person in your life? It's not, I, I think of my own children being the age of eight and making a huge, all-encompassing life decision at that point, you know, and we're just not capable at eight years old to differentiate ourselves from our caregivers that much. Mm -hmm. We're not psychologically able to do it. We're not physiologically able to do it. It's just, you know, it is the purest form happen. of indoctrination. And then if you add to that with my own story that I started being sexually abused at the age of seven. 
And I received indoctrination from my abuser at that point, which somewhat conflicted with what I was being taught at church. And that indoctrination that I received at seven almost took over in some ways and um, really caused me a great deal of conflict throughout my life because I felt like in certain situations where somebody wanted something from me physically, I didn't feel like I was allowed to say no. But Mm. the church was telling me that if I didn't say no and abstain from any kind of sexual contact, that I was an evil person. And they compared sexual sin, they call it the sin next to murder. And so it's like the only sin that you can commit worse than sexual sin is murdering somebody. And so you can imagine what that did to my psyche as a young adult growing up, you know, being pressured into physically intimate situations with boyfriends or dates or whatever, and feeling like my hands were off the wheel and my feet were off the brakes and there was nothing that I could do to stop it. And then feeling so guilty afterwards because I didn't fight tooth and nail to make sure that nothing happened. It was just this huge conflict of emotions that happened throughout my teenage years. And um, when I finally was able to leave home, I left the church completely because I felt like such a terrible human being for not being able to adhere to all of the standards. And mm-hmm. you know, given on top of that, the shame and guilt that my parents put on me for not adhering to the standards and everything. And I just really felt, I felt like a terrible human being altogether. And so that really was kind of the beginning of my exiting Mormonism for good was because I felt so much better about myself when I was not in church, you know, when Mm -hmm. I left for college the first for the first time and I was able to see it from the outside and have a little bit of outside perspective and see it the way that other people saw it. People would make comments about the Mormon church saying how crazy the doctrine is and how weird it is that you believe these things. And, you know, Mm -hmm. just all of the, the comments that other people would make about the church started my cognitive dissonance about it. Right. one thing I wanted to ask, um, at what age, um, like were your parents aware, became aware of like the abuse that occurred and and how did they respond to that? It wasn't until much later into adulthood. I was well into my thirties before I told my parents about the childhood abuse I'd experienced. Mm -hmm. They were, they were of course horrified. Um, and my mother especially felt so guilty for being the one who took us to the babysitter, you know, who was Mm -hmm. the abuser. And, you know, I've, I've tried really hard to help her understand that it wasn't her fault and that, you know, that, um, you know, these things can happen and, and it's, you know, it, it's not a necessarily the parents fault that it, that it happened or that they didn't know. Um, it was a lot, the environment and things like that. So, I mean, my, my parents definitely, um, you know, of course they, they were horrified that that happened, but then also they have another little voice in their ear from another family member of mine trying to tell them that it never, that the abuse never happened and that I made it up. And so, they have gone through phases of not believing me. The first reaction was not believing me. And, you know, then there was a little bit more of like coming around to it. And then they got this other voice in their ear that told them it didn't happen. So they stopped believing me. It's kind of gone in these cycles, you know, and I've had to get to the point where I understand why they don't want to believe me because (laughs) that means accepting some responsibility for not seeing the warning signs and the changes in my behavior and things like that. But also they have some loyalty to this other family member. 
and believing mm. me means discrediting them. And so it's again right. a fear of losing that relationship too. No, I, I wonder if if some of the you're making it up story was was tied to something like uh, you made this up to justify your immoral behavior or something like that. Yeah, some of there was some of that for sure, but also the person who is telling my parents that I made it up was one of my abusers as well. And I think that they're just trying to make sure that their own story doesn't get exposed. And mm-hmm. so I, that's, that's how I reconcile that. And I, I understand that intellectually. I think it's terrible and horrible, of course, but there's nothing I can do about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, just, I, I have my own credibility. I, I, I have my own self-love and self-belief. And so that person can say whatever they want and it doesn't affect me. Well, I think for somebody to come out and express this is like, there is no, I don't want to say there's no benefit to it, but I mean, for somebody to make something like this up, like what you, what you have been through and like what somebody would go through coming forward with a story like that is so costly and so difficult and so painful that, that this, this is why, I mean, especially when it comes to childhood stuff, it's like less than 2% or even less than 1% like false stories because it's so difficult and so painful. Like, uh, you know, and I think at most in adulthood, there's something like 7% of like uh, false, false reporting. Yeah. I think we talked about this on, on the last interview as well. Um, It's less than, than it's less than 6% of people who come forward with sexual abuse allegations find are found to be false or fraudulent. Mm -hmm. When, when a victim tells the or makes a report to the police, that number drops down to less than 3%. And so, and I think we talked about this too. If someone is making a false report, we need to ask why, what Mm -hmm. is going on with that individual that they, that they're feeling the need to not only discredit someone else, but, you know, to make that report in the first place. And I think that that is the more important conversation, but what Mm. I continue to experience over and over is people, I, my motto is believe victims. Mm -hmm. Yes. You ask questions. Yes. You get a full account and a report where you can. Yes. You ask for the details in in an appropriate way, but first you believe them. That's Mm -hmm. the number one thing. And I will say that on social media and every single time that I do, I get a litany of comments from people who say, no, we shouldn't believe victims. They can just lie. And, and it's mostly, I have to say mostly middle-aged men that make those kind of comments, but it's, I I think there's this, this fear out there that a lot of men have of being falsely accused of something like that. And when I go ahead, as a middle-aged man, I could tell you like, that would be like that, that is like life destroying. Yeah, of course it can be. It definitely or, or, can, or, or be. can be. I mean, I mean, and so I think there's this overreaction to confronting the fear of like, could you imagine what it would be like to be falsely accused? Like literally everything I've spent my entire life building is taken away from me. And so that fear um, overrides like understanding of the factual details that in mm-hmm. fact, uh, it's such a low percentage of false reporting. Right. And, and so not to excuse the response, but I think, yeah, why, why would guys respond that way? And it, I think it would be. They're just genuine. The other part of it, though, is that the majority, not exclusively, but the majority of abusers are male. And I think, like, <clears throat> excuse me, how does it make men look as a whole? Like, part of the reason why I like, or, or I, I fight for this and I want to expose this stuff is because as a man, like, I am so frustrated. 
and so like horrified by behavior that other men have committed that I do not want to be, you know, connected and associated with that. And so I think it's so important that, and I think more men out there, more good men need to speak up and to raise their voice and to be advocates and to fight for victims. There, I, I think I might've mentioned the author of a book called Men Fight For Me. It's literally written by the executive director of an organization called Saving Innocence. Mm-hmm. And it's about men being the necessary advocates because men are the primary abusers and women are the primary victims. Sometimes the roles are reversed, but the uh, vast majority, that's the dynamic that takes place. And it's, it's awful and it's terrifying and it's horrifying. And we have to do everything we can to, to try to correct that. And so, yeah, when you, when you share these stats, you get these, these absurd comments in and about that. And I'm, you know, I want to say, I'm sorry that it's your experience, but I think you're, you have thick enough skin to kind of handle it. You've, you've walked through fire to get here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The fire, fire made my skin tough for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it is horrible to be falsely accused. It can be life ruining, career ruining mm-hmm. as uh, until the truth comes out, you know, right. and, and it, but as a victim who has historically not been believed in some situations, I can tell you it's just as devastating to not be believed, especially yes. by the people that you love and trust the most in your mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. So my my most important thing to pe- to say to people is if somebody comes forward and tells you that they've been abused in some way, believe them first, validate mm-hmm. them first, then mm-hmm. find out what to do, you know, to get the story and the truth told. There's two really really important things that you've you've shared here. Um <clears throat> pardon me, one of them being um, yes, believe first. We have to start from that place. And it, there's been an investigator um, that's been looking into the abuse that's taking place in the two by two fellowship now for about eight or nine months. And she's she's you know went after the Catholic Church and after the Boy Scouts, and so she's she's well versed in like in in investing this sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, this idea that yeah, my train of thought went off the tracks. But essentially, uh, believe first. Oh, here's what it is. She said, it's actually not that difficult for a seasoned investigator to figure out when someone's false reporting. Like it doesn't take too many questions to figure out when something's a false report. But the other part of it is what you shared here. Don't just immediately smear them with a brush and go, you're you're a terrible person. Why are they doing this? Look Mm -hmm. to understand that. And it it sort of calls into, into play here what I like to call my compassionate curiosity, looking to understand a pattern of behavior. Yes, there's the possibility there could be a nefarious pattern of behavior there more likely is like something else has gone wrong and this is an expression of that. And so be curious about why that might be taking place. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So to pick up um, kind yeah, of where we left story. off, um, I, I did leave the church for a few years. Um, I ended up in a series of coercive control relationships. Um, I ended up engaged to somebody who was not a member of the church, um, mainly out of guilt because he was much older than I was. He told me that um, if this relationship didn't work out, that he was probably going to unalive himself because, um, you know, he felt so terrible about things. So kind of guilted me into staying in the relationship, even though I, I knew it wasn't what I wanted. I eventually, though, did get to the point where I came back to my faith and I thought, is this what God would want for me? Is this would he want me to attach myself to somebody who treats me this way? And the answer was no. And I somehow found the strength to tell him, no, this is not what I want for my life. And, you know, I, I ended up breaking off the engagement 
And then two weeks later found out I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that was the ultimate shame for my parents. Um, right, it right. was um, the ultimate shame as far as my church membership was concerned. Um, I had to go in and confess to the bishop, and um, he made me read this book called The Miracle of Forgiveness, which was the sort of the Mormon textbook for repentance at the time. If you had committed any kind of sexual sin, they would give you this book and you would read it. And the problem is the person who wrote it was a former prophet of the church, the former president of the church. And he was, um, by reading the book, you can very clearly see that this person was extremely homophobic, extremely Mm -hmm. sexually repressed, um, basically compared people who, um, well, he, he basically lumped people who have any kind of sexual, what he called sexual deviancy, um, lumped them all together into this horrible group where he said, if you masturbate or if you're gay, or if you have, he would say masturbation leads to um, homosexual behavior and homosexual behavior leads to bestiality. And so he would lump everybody into like this same clump to where you just felt like you were a garbage human being because of the this actual really natural pr- proclivity to uh, you know experiment with sexuality and mm-hmm. so you know reading that book was like it, it was supposed to be it was called the miracle of forgiveness but i felt after reading that like there was no hope for forgiveness i felt like i had mm-hmm. done the worst possible things and that i would going to have to spend the rest of my life making up for it by trying to be a good mormon So Mm -hmm. after um, I found out I was pregnant, I met another person and to, and to my parents, it was like, you know, the, the ultimate shame for their daughter to have a baby outside of marriage. And so my idea in my brain was like, well, if I get married, then it's going to erase all of that. You know, it'll make, it'll make all of that right. And so I ended up in another coercive control relationship, but at least I was married. And so my baby had a, had a quote unquote father at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I decided to come back to church to try and erase all of the wrongs that I had done and try to be as good of a Mormon as I possibly could. And so I spent the next 20 years um, just in the most devout worship of Mormonism I possibly could be. I did literally everything that was asked of me. I took on every responsibility that I was asked to take on, even at times when I had six children and my husband was not helping me. Um, He was not coming to church with me, but I was bringing my six children to church for three hours every single Sunday by myself. And I was also teaching in the church and I was also Mm. serving in other ways in the church and doing absolutely everything I could. Um, Shortly after we got married, my spouse decided to quit his job and start a business. And we had zero income for probably about two to two and a half years. And we amassed a huge amount of debt. And I was taking every kind of job I could on the side to try and make money. We were on food stamps. It was just a really horrible time. But at the same time, I felt like I needed to continue having children because that was a way of being acceptable in the Mormon community. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely love being a mother. I love my children. I would not trade it for the world. But sometimes I wonder if I hadn't been so enmeshed in this high-demand religion, if I would have chosen to have that many children that close together in a, in a situation where we were destitute. 
You know, mm-hmm. it just was the expectation that you have as many children as you can, even if you can't afford it, because, you know, God will provide for you kind of situation. Mm-hmm. So it was a really difficult upbringing for especially my older children. Um, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, hardship and difficulty that they went through because their dad was not a member of the church. They got, you know, shamed and bullied and mm-hmm. and and probably, you know, spiritually abused because of that family situation, you know, people knowing um, that, that your dad's not a member. So your parents weren't married in the temple. So you're kind of a second class citizen at that point. Right, right. You know, so that had to have been really, really difficult for my children. And all the while I'm experiencing the cognitive dissonance of the way women are treated, the misogyny mm-hmm, and, the, mm-hmm. and the way that um, there was polygamy in the past church and and not understanding why, but being told by the apologists, well, we don't practice it anymore. It's not a part of our religion, but it's literally still in the scripture. It's still canonized doctrine. You know, mm-hmm. it's still something that it's a concept that is a ghost that sort of infects all of Mormonism. Mm-hmm. And what really got to it for me was, um, sorry, I need to plug my laptop in before the battery dies <laughs> that's okay um the church announced a policy where they were not going to allow children of homosexual partners to get baptized mm-hmm. and this was right around the time of prop 8 in california and um, gay marriage being legalized in a lot of different places and the church made a decision that um if your parents were gay and they were married, you know, you were a child that was in, you know, your parents were in a homosexual relationship. They were not going to allow that child to get baptized unless they renounced homosexuality and acknowledged that their parents were sinning and that that behavior was not something that they were going to continue in their own lives. Um, You're basically asking children to, um, to say that their parents were sinful people. And that, and that they weren't going to do the same thing as their parents. And to me, that was a bombshell because I was a teacher at the time and I had so many students um, who were in the LGBTQ community and that I loved and cared about. Mm-hmm. And I would bring, I would bring my kids, I was a choir teacher. I would bring my kids to church to sing at Christmas and Easter time. And how could I, as somebody who loved and cared about these people, bring them into a church that teaches that homosexuality is the sin next to murder, basically, mm-hmm. because the Mormon church classified homosexual relationships in the same way that they classify an unmarried couple, an unmarried heterosexual couple, um, mm-hmm. saying that they're having sex outside of the bounds that God, that God put out. And so therefore they're not accepted. Um, and then I ended up, two of my sons ended up coming out as LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, I can't, I can't affiliate myself with a church that teaches that my children are unacceptable to God. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I just kept thinking like, this is not the way Jesus would do it. This is, he wouldn't, he wouldn't treat people this way. Um, so mm-hmm. that, that was an item that I couldn't put on my shelf because there were already too many things there. And yep. I, I, I just remember crying and crying over that because, you know, I was like, well, if the church is true and this is what I've patterned my entire life after, and it's, and you're basically telling me that if I don't believe this policy that I can't 
live with God when this life is over. And Mm -hmm. I got to a point where I just accepted that. I was like, okay, I guess if that's what God wants, then I I guess I'm just going to have to be okay with not living with God when the when this life is over. And the way Mormons teach about heaven is that there's like three different levels of heaven and the highest level is reserved for people who've gone to the temple and checked all the boxes and agreed with all the doctrine. And if you don't, then you're at one of the lower levels. You know, if you've never been a Mormon, you're at one of the lower levels, you know, those kinds of things. And I just had, I just made my peace with it. I was like, I guess I'm going to be in the lowest level of heaven then because, you know, I, I love my people. I love my children. I love my students and I'm not going to denounce their behavior as wrong. I think I was like, I got to this point where I was like, the church is getting it wrong about this. And I knew that the Mormon church had excluded black people from receiving the priesthood or from attending the temple up until 1978. Mm-hmm. And I believed that they got that wrong for a very long mm-hmm. time. I was like, Jesus would not have occlu- excluded anybody because well, of he the wasn't white to begin with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, Mormon, Mormon yeah. Jesus is white. So, um, right. but I said yeah. to myself, they're, they got it wrong with black people in the priesthood. They're getting it wrong about LGBTQ people. It's going to take a couple hundred years for them to finally like catch up to the, to what should be done. Um, so that started my sort of questioning and my exiting because um, I, you know, I just couldn't agree with those policies. Mm-hmm. But what really um, made my exit possible was COVID because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were not allowed to go to in-person church. I had to completely take a break from it. Um, I started therapy, you know, a few years prior to that. And that was where I started developing this ability to recognize unhealthy behaviors and manipulative patterns and things like that. And I started seeing it in the church. I saw it in the church culture everywhere. And I I had this line in my mind where I was like, okay, well, the church culture is terrible, but the doctrine is true. So I'm going to keep plugging along, you know? And, um, I, I finally did get to the space during COVID where I started to allow myself to look into the truth claims of the church because <laughs> of because of the LGBTQ movement and because of Black Lives Matter and because of all the things that were going on at that time. And um, I had attended a conference on investing for work. And mm-hmm. at the conference, we had to review a prospectus and then say whether or not we were going to invest in this thing. So I reviewed the prospectus. And the person said, okay, would you, would you invest in this thing? And I said, well, no, because all I have is a prospectus. This, the person who's asking me to invest the money has put this report together. The only information that's in here is from this person. I want to look at some outside sources and see what other people say about this company. And if I should invest, I want to look at their track record. I want to look at their financial statements, you know, all these other things. And it was sort of like this distant bell went off in my head because I had only ever read the approved materials of the church. I had been a very good Mormon and, and had only read correlated materials and things mm-hmm. that were supportive of the church. I'd never looked at the other viewpoint. So COVID gave me an opportunity to start doing that because I believed that some of the things that were being taught were really harmful and mm-hmm. started to see the, the manipulative patterns. And so once I started digging into the truth claims and the history of the church, I came to the realization that it makes a lot more sense that Joseph Smith, in the time period that he lived, created a doctrine that um, sort of fit the time period that he was in, answered some of the historical questions that people had, 
answered some of the theological problems that his family had with the death of his brother and some of the things that his mother was concerned about. It was just very clear looking into the actual non-whitewashed history that the entire religion was invented by Joseph Smith, that he completely made everything up, that the Book of Mormon was a work of fiction, and the current leadership of the church actually are in possession of some documents that refute some of the church, some of the truth claims of the church. But of course they want to protect the reputation of the veracity of those claims. And so they won't allow those materials to be read by anybody. They're literally in a vault in Salt Lake City. Right. Right. (laughs) And so you, um, you're going on both a deconstruct, a deconstruction journey and a healing journey in parallel, which sounds like a really taxing thing to, to go through because Either one of those journeys can be quite psychologically and emotionally intense. Um, Or I I guess it's accurate to say you were kind of, these journeys were happening with you in parallel. Yeah, they, they really were happening somewhat in parallel. But by the time I got to the point where I allowed myself to examine the truth claims of the church, I had already exited three or four different abusive systems. <laughs> right, <laughs> you okay. know, I had I had um, done all this therapy work about the sex trafficking, sex trafficking mm-hmm. I had been involved in. I had already distanced myself from my toxic family system. Mm-hmm. I had already gotten divorced. Mm-hmm. I had quit my teaching job, which I felt was another abusive system Mm -hmm. um, because teaching asks so much from us and gives so little in return. And we, we just, we get so um, used up and maligned by the system and we're not valued as individuals or as human beings. Even Um, when school shootings started happening more frequently, I said like this, this is ridiculous. People don't even care about the lives of students and teachers So I exited that as well. So by the time I got to leaving the church, I was kind of a pro at deconstructing systems. (laughs) (laughs) I sort of knew how to do it. And so, yes, it was devastating. Yes, I visited all of the all of the um, stages of grief many times. Yes, I had an existential crisis where I was like, okay, if not this, then what? Um, And I luckily had some really amazing resources that I was able to go to. There's a podcast called the Mormon Stories Podcast, and they do a series called Mormon Discussions, and they go through every single facet of Mormon theology from the very beginning to the very end, and they help people to understand the real, um, the reality rather than the whitewashed version of it. And so I binged all 42 episodes of that podcast. They were probably, some of them were two or three hours long. Um, yeah. You know, I, I went through the um, the course with Dr. Stephen Hassan of uh, exiting mm-hmm. high demand religion. And that was incredibly helpful. Um, there's also a huge ex-Mormon community on Reddit. That was actually the first um, thing that that helped me to deconstruct was listening to other people's stories about leaving and and the things that broke their shelf and things like that. And the other thing I have to say is that leaving the church in Texas is a lot easier than leaving the church in Utah. Um, right. You know, I was already kind of separated from my family, so there was no big fallout of me telling them that I left the church when I left. I, I told them, and they were like, "Well, it's no surprise. You know, that's you were headed down this right. path for a long time, kind of thing." Um, but my 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 livelihood didn't depend on it. My social structure didn't depend on it. You know, I had fr- I had plenty of friends out that's outside the church. And really, post divorce, I I had separated myself so much from the church that I was what they call 
um, physically in, but mentally out. So I was attending right. church, but I wasn't serving in church anymore. I wasn't teaching in church anymore. Um, I was taking my kids, but I wasn't really, I, I didn't really believe anymore. So I wasn't really following mm-hmm those things. So yeah, it was a gradual process, but it was like the end of the process was like an exponential speeding up of evolution that just, you know, kind of everything fell away within a matter of a few months. Mm -hmm. And this was really, this was really recent, actually, this happened back in February of this year. Wow. Wow. Okay. So that's February of 2023. Um, yeah, talk about exponential um, speed of things. And so, <clears throat> pardon me. And then, so there's that old bronchitis still showing up ever so slightly. Um, you know, your kids have witnessed this entire journey as well. And and they're all like in different age brackets. And they've watched you go through, you know, the journey of healing from the abuse that you suffered as a victim of trafficking and grooming, um, uh, leaving an abusive marriage, leaving an abusive profession, leaving an abusive church. And I'm thinking, man, they've, they've got some incredible life lessons, but <laughs> that, that can't have been easy to even, even just having those conversations can't have been easy. Yeah, definitely was not. Um, uh, luckily my oldest son was actually the first one to leave the church and he left when he was 14. Um, and, and it took me another 12 years to get out after that. Um, and then one of my other daughters left the church as well. Um, so yeah, it has been, uh, (laughs) it, it has been, I'm sure interesting in a lot of ways for them to, to witness this transformation, but throughout the whole process, ever since my divorce, I really have been very, very open with my children about everything that I've gone through about, um, you know, of course, age, age appropriately, right. Um, the different therapy things that I've gone through, but what I hope that it has taught my kids, and we have had some conversations about this is that choosing yourself is so important and that, um, you know, taking care of yourself and prioritizing your mental health is more important than pleasing someone or getting validation from any source. And I think I've seen it in my in my children's choice of um, partners, companions, um, spouses, mm-hmm. and I've seen it in the way that they make choices about their future, their profession, um, the things that matter to them in their lives. And I hope that it has taught them that um, y- we all make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes are really costly, and they're costly to other people. My my children paid a price for being raised in that religion, and mm-hmm. and to some degree are still paying that price. But the faster that we can admit that we've made a mistake or that we've made a misstep, and then recover and say, okay, what do I do now? And start down that path, path the better off we are. And the more that I start to, the more that I talk to people and coach people through faith transitions, faith crisis and things like that, the more I see that really what happens to people is they get stuck in one of the stages of grief mm-hmm. and they get into that freeze mode and they don't really know what to do next. And they can, you can spend years stuck in a stage of grief without really processing it or addressing it. And we just get on autopilot and we continue mm-hmm do the same things that we've always done because it feels comfortable, feels familiar to us. And it takes a great deal of willpower and courage to step away and examine things from the outside. But I think that's the most important thing that people can do. And I think um, as a, as a coach in a different arena, but I could say the, the value and the importance of of coaching really is somebody's not alone in this journey. Now Um, it, it is so 
Like you become so incredibly vulnerable to go through something like this that your brain basically wants to shut down and wants you to run away back to whatever is familiar. So having somebody there who's been through, who's been on the journey, who has, um, who, who's walked the walk, but just someone that has your back. Like when, when, the, when the going gets tough is like so, so, so crucial and important. And the last thing, just before we wrap up here, I just wrote down this word de-shaming. You know, you talked about talking about what happened to you. If we could just get rid of the shame of like being human, get rid of the shame around struggling, making mistakes, messing up, making poor choices, like get rid of that shame because um, it's so important for healing and being able to move forward. And I think you, you've, you've been an incredible example of that in these, these last uh, number of years. And so um, if, if somebody is really struggling with this, I I'd just like to hear your thoughts on, on this kind of this process of de-shaming and how does somebody kind of make peace with their past? It's uh, to me, it's more about making peace with yourself because, um, mm. you know, when I left the church and I finally signed the paper to remove my name from the records of the church and resign, I literally felt shame leave my body because I was no longer living in a system where I, as a human being, was unacceptable because mm-hmm. of who I was. I was a divorced bisexual mother of six children who five of five, four of whom were not in the church anymore. And I was unacceptable that way. Mm -hmm. And the only way for me to change that was to lie to myself about who I was and leaving the church meant stopping that lie. Mm -hmm. It meant stopping the betrayal of myself, ending self-betrayal, ending self-shaming, um, Making peace with our past is about making peace with who we are and the ideas that we have about ourselves. And I've often said that it's not the trauma that damages us. It's the negative beliefs that we develop about ourselves because of the trauma. We Mm. believe we're not in control. We believe we're not powerful. We believe we're not worthy of good treatment. And those negative beliefs, when they remain intact, are what contribute to all of the dysfunction that comes after and all of the self-loathing and the self-shame and the inability to recover. Mm -hmm. So recovery starts with loving and accepting all of the parts of yourself, the shadow parts, as well as the parts that you deem to be acceptable and lovable. It's like, yes, there is a shadow part of myself that is a warrior. And that warrior wants to come out every single time I'm asked to trust somebody. The warrior wants to come out and say, nope, don't trust that person. Don't be vulnerable. Don't give them any of your power. And I have to just say, thank you, warrior Megan, for coming Mm -hmm. out and protecting me from the potential of being hurt by being vulnerable. But right now, what I want to focus on is my ability to be vulnerable because that helps me connect. So I'm going to ask you to step away and come back out when you think I need protecting again. I love you, warrior. Thank you for being here. I love the part that you play in my life. Um, Mm. You know, all the parts of ourselves deserve to be loved and accepted for the parts that they are. We need all of the parts of ourselves. And if we can learn to love and accept those things, then shame doesn't exist anymore. Well, I think that's a great note to finish. I normally ask for words of wisdom, but I think you you just absolutely nailed it. So um, thank you so much for, for being on again. Thank you for the work that you're doing and for sharing your powerful story. And uh, it's truly been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for tuning into The Hidden Truth. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. It is so important that these stories are heard so that we continue to raise awareness and support victim survivors in their healing journey. For those who have been affected but haven't found your voice yet, I hope these stories inspire you to keep moving forward on your healing journey. Take care.